0: But with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are the one body for we all partake of the one bread consider the people of israel are not these are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar what do i imply then that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything no i imply that the pagan sacrifice that what the pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to god i do not want you to be participants with demons You cannot drink the cup of the lord and the cup of demons you cannot partake of the table of the lord and the table of demons shall we provoke the lord to jealousy are we stronger than he Hmm. this is the word of the lord
1: thanks be to god
0: please pray with me god we thank you uh, for your word Uh, we thank you that when we put trust in you lord that we can know you Mm -hmm. um, that we can hear your voice and we can hear the truth in your words lord and that you compel us then um, to obey lord we confess that we are also often not compelled to obey god Mm -hmm. um our sin getting in the way of knowing you and hearing your voice lord um i just ask that you would forgive us us of this, Lord, and that today, um, as Tommy preaches, that we would hear what we need to hear uh, today, not what we want to hear, Lord. Mm. I pray that you would speak through Tommy, Lord, that you would um, teach him as well and allow us all to worship you together as we learn about you. God, I pray that you would... Um, build up our hearts with your own love this morning and that we would be able to go out this week and thereafter to just live out what we have learned, God, even if that is difficult. Um, So just uh, show us your love and strengthen us for the week ahead um, through your word this morning. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.
1: Amen. You may be seated. Thanks, Anna. Well, good morning, Mercy House. My name is Pastor Tommy. I'm glad that you are with us this morning. We've got a lot of work to do, so we are going to jump right into it. I'm going to pray again for myself. Pray with me. God, Father, I just need your help. I'm desperately, all of us need you. God, just help us to hear and receive your words this morning, and let our hearts be attentive to what your words are. Let these words be stored up in our hearts. Let them bring life and healing to us. God, let my words just illuminate your glory and your voice. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath your chairs. If you don't own a Bible, please take one and just bring it home with you. That would be our gift to you this morning. Uh, So, last week we went through chapter 9, and it's a pretty challenging word as Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to give up their rights and their freedoms for the sake of the gospel. Uh, But it ends with Paul exhorting the Corinthians to realize that anything they give up, it's not in vain. Anything that they give up is incomparable to the eternal salvation of others as they sacrifice it for their good but also that it brings them their own eternal reward, this crown of unfading glory that awaits them at the finish line. And so the idea is that the endurance and perseverance of the saint is absolutely worth it as we live out our lives. And so Paul shifts in chapter 10 to warn the Corinthians of what happens if you don't decide to persevere, if you don't endure in the faith. He warns them against apostasy and from falling away from God. So the core concept that we're going to return to, if you're a note taker, this is what you're going to write down, is that faithfulness to God is through obedience to God's Word and worship of God with our whole heart. So faithfulness to God is through obedience to God's Word and worship of God with our whole heart. Let's start in verse 1 in chapter 10 there. What Paul's doing here at the beginning of the chapter is he's drawing a direct connection between the Corinthians and the experience of Israel as we read about it in the Old Testament. And what should stand out to you as you read this opening section is that he's not giving a history lesson on some distant ancient civilization. He refers to a collective identity that the Corinthians now have with Israel. And it implies an ancestral relationship with them. He says, our fathers... And the reason why this should stand out to you is because Corinth is a diverse mod podge of people. And some of the people in the church uh, were Jewish, but the majority of the church is composed of non-Jewish Greek converts. But their faith in Christ has grafted them into God's kingdom and into God's family. So what this means for you, would you read the first verse there, is that if you are a follower of Jesus, you are an adopted member of Into God's family. And not just in some vague technical spiritual sense. Like, for instance, I am adopted. I really am. This isn't just like a joke. I am adopted. My adoptive mother truly is my mother. Right? You're not gonna convince me otherwise. Her daughter became my sister, her father became my grandfather. And so what that means for you as a Christian is that your forefathers include Abraham and Moses and David and Solomon, and your foremothers include Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Mary. You see, the Old Testament is a story of your history, god's family is your family and perhaps most incredibly all of god's promises all of his prophecies all of his provisions that he makes for his people extend to you and to i personally since we have been made his people practically this really should shape the way that we read our bibles specifically the old testament A few years ago, Caitlin got me a 23andMe DNA test for Christmas, um, and it it was really cool. My entire life, I thought I was 100% Vietnamese. It turns out I'm 51% Chinese and 49% Vietnamese. That was a pretty radical moment. Like, overnight, I realized that I'm Chinese. I was like, that's awesome. I didn't know that. And it opened a whole new world of things to learn about. Things to be excited about, honestly, things to like really treasure and take pride in as I thought of the Chinese people and all that they've accomplished throughout time and history. Because overnight, the history of Chinese people wasn't just something in textbooks for Chinese people, it became my people. And so, Christian, if you're in Christ, then the Bible is an account of your family history. Isn't that wild? And Paul is reminding the Corinthians here of their newly inherited family history. Verse one, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And so, two really important historical moments in the history of Israel, or really our history, right, is one, they're being miraculously rescued and saved by God out of slavery in Egypt, where they got to pass through the Red Sea. And two, God leading them through the desert via, via a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. You read about these two accounts in Exodus 13 and 14. And both of these experiences, they showcase God's active and caring love for his people, Israel. You see God's miraculous salvation as he rescued them, but he, you also see his constant guarding of them and his protection of them day and night. And so he's bringing the miraculous uh, experiences of Israel's um, relationship with God in Exodus to the forefront of the Corinthians' minds. But then he kind of takes an interesting step. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, "...and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ." That's peculiar. At first, it would appear that Paul is simply reminding them that Israel was miraculously provided food in the form of manna, which came down from heaven. You read about this in Exodus 16. And that God miraculously provided them water by having Moses strike a rock. You see this in Exodus 17, when Paul makes a pretty astounding claim. In the second part of verse 4 there, he says, For they drank from that spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ." This is Paul shifting from historian to theologian, from merely reciting some historical events to explaining these events in their significance and relation to redemptive history. What Paul is doing by saying that the rock which was struck to pour out water for Israel was Jesus, is, he's making the point that these critical experiences of Israel are a typology for the church in Corinth. In other words, Israel's experiences as an earthly kingdom was a type. It was a foreshadowing of what would come for God's heavenly kingdom, which Christ has ushered in. Paul is not crazy for making this connection. He's not just fanboying over Jesus and inserting Jesus randomly into the Old Testament text. Jesus himself, during his earthly ministry, was the first to claim this connection, and what we learn is that those miraculously, uh, miraculous experiences of having bread provided for them, this experience of miraculously provided water, they weren't just incredible in and of themselves, which they were. Did you read Exodus? We're like, wow, that's amazing. But they were pointing to something even more incredible. This is unpacked in John. The first reference I'm going to uh, pull up, you're going to see it on your screen, John chapter 6 Jesus had just fed the 5,000. Uh, people are coming to him, and they want more bread. And Jesus calls them out for that, and he's like, you just want more bread. And so they have this discourse, and this is the end of the discourse. Jesus said, said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In chapter 4 of John, just a couple chapters previous to this, Jesus is interacting with this woman by this well, and they have this interaction. um, And Jesus answered her. This is in chapter 4, verse 10 through 14. It should be on your screens. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that you were saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this well I'm sorry, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What we're seeing in these two passages is that the manna in Exodus was foreshadowing Jesus. Uh, The rock that provided fresh water, that pointed to Jesus. Now, why does Paul want them to make this connection? Well, I think he wants them to make the connection. He wants us to make the connection for three reasons. First is that it gives us an appreciation for the Scriptures. It gives us an appreciation for the Scriptures. He is kind of teasing the Corinthians here with two beautiful threads of God's plan that's been orchestrated over thousands of years to get them and us to simply marvel at the epicness of God's story. So as you read the Bible, there are thousands of other ways that the scriptures, as we study them, that they, they, they reveal more in, in a more incredible story than we can comprehend at our first reading or at face value. The story of the Bible and the entire arc of redemptive history is the best story that you will ever read or ever hear. So don't just read the Bible because you're a Christian and I know Christians should read their Bibles. No, if nothing else, read the Bible for the entertainment of it. And Paul is helping the Corinthians and us truly appreciate Scripture for the story that God has woven together. Second, this helps Corinth and us know that this is where God was going all along. So this wasn't God kind of figuring out everything as it's happening. He wasn't just shooting from the hip. This was the plan. Everything was meant to point to Christ, the Messiah. He was the solution that was promised all the way back in Genesis in the garden when everything first fell apart. And in very dramatic and beautiful fashion, God laid out these little signposts across thousands of years that pointed to his solution to that problem of sin and suffering. Until one day, Jesus himself was born to live a life that would be the fulfillment of all of God's promises throughout all of the ages. The Old Testament is relevant, and all of scripture is relevant because the Bible is a story about our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the solution to mankind's greatest problem. That's why scripture is relevant. And third, it's to let Corinth and us know that Israel's experiences are relevant to them and us. Not only are we their ancestors, their experiences on earth, foreshadowed as a typology what it looks like for us today to live as Christians in God's heavenly kingdom and to be members of God's family. And so the church, as we experience it today, it is the fulfillment of God's vision for how he wants us to relate to him. And when you see it first, where Israel was kind of this kingdom 1.0 in the old covenant, and God is established here in the church under the new covenant, kingdom 2.0. And so there's a lot that we can learn looking at the 1.0 model from Israel's experiences, and that's what Paul is setting out to do for the Corinthians in chapter 10. As you read on, before the Corinthians get too jazzed and too excited about their family pedigree, look at verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. I would like to imagine that if I personally experienced the ten plagues in Egypt— So I saw the frogs, if I saw the locusts, if I saw the hailstorms that killed cattle and the sun being blocked out and the rivers turning to blood, and then if I experienced walking through a parted Red Sea while the most powerful army in the world chased behind me and my family, only to be crushed by the water as it closed up right behind me and my family got out safely, that if I experience miraculous food being delivered to me from heaven every single day for all my days, and if I experience water that shot out of a rock to keep me and my family alive, then that I would like trust and be faithful to God, that I would be like, of course, God, you're going to provide for me. Of course, I trust you and I believe in you. I think all of us might... Be tempted to say that. But the reality, as Paul points out in verse 5, is that Israel did not remain faithful. God was not pleased by them. In fact, it was due to their disobedience and their unfaithfulness to God that led them to apostasy and it led them to be overthrown in the wilderness. The generation that experienced firsthand uh, God's miraculous love, His care, His provision, His protection, would not enter into the promised land because of their faithlessness. Even Moses himself, God's mouthpiece, who had a first hand experience of God, didn't enter into the promised land. Why? When we see the reason, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 51, this is God speaking. He says, Because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. Moses lost faith. He didn't obey God's word. He didn't, he, he didn't word. He didn't worship God with all of his heart. And one of the things that we need to learn from Israel's experience, that's relevant to our experience as Christians, is that faithful perseverance is not through affiliation or experiences. If faithful perseverance, and faithfulness to God, enough to get into the promised land, was through affiliation or experience, then all of Israel should have been able to, able to make it into the promised land. It, the Israelites were certainly affiliated with God. And all of the men were circumcised as a physical symbol of their membership within God's family, and that's quite the membership process for them. So to be Jewish was not just like a way that you voted it was not like having a Costco membership that you paid once a year and you, you never talked to them ever again, but you can just go in and out through the doors. If you were affiliated with God, you knew and everyone around you knew that you were an Israelite. But it's one thing to be an Israelite and to have the mark of God's covenant and to be affiliated with God and to have miraculous experience with God. experiences with God, and it's another to place your faith and your trust in God. And one of these two things gets you into the kingdom. But what does this mean for us today? Well, partially that Christian affiliation or church membership are not the basis for our faithfulness to God. And neither are spiritual experiences that we might have. I'm not saying these two things have no value. They're important. It's important to be a member of church. And if you've been here, you know that we kind of bang on that drum a lot. And it's important to worship God and have meaningful experiences of worship. So we're not saying that that they have no value or that they're bad, but they are not what make us Christian. And plenty of the Israelites, perhaps all of them, thought clearly, like, I'm one of God's people. I walked through the Red Sea. I ate bread that came down from heaven. Of course I'm entering into the promised land. But in fact, they would be shut out of the promised land. See, it doesn't matter how faithful we are as members of the church— And it doesn't matter how many meaningful spiritual experiences of worship that we have, or miraculous experiences of healing, or miraculous answers to any of our prayers that we might have, when it comes to pleasing God and being able to enter into the kingdom, what matters is our hearts. And Israel's actions, which flowed from their hearts, they revealed a lack of faith and trust in God. They didn't obey, they didn't fully worship. What did this look like for them, and what can we learn from Israel? Well, look at verse 6. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So right away, notice how these verses are an example sandwich. That's what I'm going to call it. It's an example sandwich. Verse 6, top bun there, says, Now these things took place as examples for us. And then the bottom bun, verse 11, says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. So part of what Paul is saying is, Hey, you should probably highlight the text in the middle here. This is really important. This is literally for you. The point that Paul is trying to make is that we do not need to learn exclusively from our failures. So this concept is real and true in Proverbs 1. Wisdom cries out in the streets. In the words of my friend Ben, we don't need to crash our cars in order to learn how to drive cars. Does that make sense? See, that's Paul's hope as he showcases the sinful hearts and the sinful actions of Israel that prevented them from entering into the promised land. That the Corinthians would see these car crashes, that they would see the devastation based on Israel's actions in their heart. They would see the outcome, and then they would learn from these as well. So what kept Israel out of the promised land? Well, let's go through it together. It might be helpful for you to circle some of these as we go through them. First one we see is verse 6, they desired evil. The wording here is not that they wanted evil things, but it reveals that they wanted things in an evil way. So they had evil desire. This evil desire is talked about in a couple of places. Uh, in Numbers 11, this is just a couple of examples. Numbers 11 uh, verse 4 says that they had greedy desires, talking about this generation of Israel in the, in the desert. Um, Psalm 106.14 talks about the sinful desires of this particular generation of Israel, saying they were seized with craving in the wilderness. And so the way that we understand evil desires or desiring evil is that, that they coveted, they had sinful, passionate longings. And not just as temptations, but but they fed these and they acted on these. In verse 7 here, we see, Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Paul cites a verse from one of Israel's most egregious moments of idol worship that you see in the Bible. So Exodus 32, as Moses is up on Mount Sinai meeting with God to receive and deliver the, the, the commandments for his people, Israel gets a little bit impatient. What do they do in their impatience? Uh, instead of remaining faithful to God, and um, God hasn't given them any reasons to not be faithful to God. What they do is they decide to pool all of their jewelry together and they put it into a melting pot and they forge a golden baby cow. What do they do next? Look at Exodus chapter 32 verse 5. It's going to be up on your screens. When Aaron saw this, oh good, okay. So a second in command, maybe he's going to be a good leader. Maybe he's going to shepherd Israel and correct them. He built an altar before it. Nice. Thanks, Aaron. Good. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. In about a moment's time, Israel went from worshiping God as a response to his incredible, miraculous love and care for them to worshiping a golden baby cow action figure. I don't even want to, like, make light of this because it's incredibly devastating to God. It's heartbreaking to Him. To put it into, like, a little bit of context, this is what it would be like. It would be like if you were on a date with your spouse, and your spouse has laid down their life for you. They have shown you nothing but absolute love and absolute care for you. And while they get up to go to the bathroom, they take a little bit too much time. And what you decide to do is you bring up your phone and you open up Tinder to find another date and you're scrolling through and you connect with someone and you set up that date and you leave the date with your spouse to go on this date with somebody else. That's what's happening. Idolatry, worshiping something other than God is heartbreaking to God because it is spiritual adultery against God. And this would not be the only time that Israel was guilty of it. There's a reason why Paul cites this verse in Exodus chapter 32, where it says they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. One commentator puts it like this. They say, this is a tasteful way to speak of gross immorality among the people of Israel. Their worship included eating, drinking, in the sense of drunkenness, and sexual immorality. So the verb, uh, the verb play there suggests sex play in Hebrew. And therefore, we are probably to understand this to mean drunken orgies. That's what a commentator has to say about verse 6. You've got desiring evil, you've got idolatry, and this is a segue into the third area of brokenness and sin that Israel experienced, which is sexual immorality. Verse 8 says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Paul has spoken in length on sexual immorality in chapters 5 and 6, which means that we have also covered it in length. And so I encourage you to go back and look at those sermons. But as it relates to their unfaithfulness to God, sexual immorality among Israel was a distrust in God, which then led to disobedience in God's commands. It wasn't just a sinful, uh, it wasn't just sinful because of the act, but it was sinful because of what it revealed in the hearts of those engaged in in it and people who engage in sexual immorality and in sexual sin we talked about this in chapter five don't believe that god has set up marriage for their good and they don't believe that god has designed sex to be enjoyed in a specific way for their good but what they do believe is that they know better and that they are immune to the incredibly damaging effects of lust in their heart and uniting into one flesh with someone who is not their spouse Sexual immorality is a sin of great pride and of idolatry, which were on full display in the hearts and the actions of Israel. So we've got evil desires, we've got idolatry, we've got sexual immorality, and finally here in verse 10, grumbling. Grumbling. The second sermon I preached here at Mercy House during this transition period back in August was all about grumbling. Uh, It was titled provision, and it actually was the text on God's miraculous provision of manna uh, for Israel in Exodus chapter 16. And as we talk about sins of the heart, grumbling is one that I'd guess is the sin that people think is probably the, less, the, the least severe, um, even if, if they even know that it exists as a sin, but is probably the most widespread in the world. That's what I would say. And I'm not going to preach a whole sermon uh, inside this sermon on grumbling, but in short, in short, Grumbling is targeted whining. Grumbling is targeted whining. It's when we find ourselves in a situation that we don't like, maybe when we have a real need, but instead of being patient and trusting or even productively communicating our needs, our desires, our discomfort, what we do is we revert back to being little children, and we moan, and we gripe, And we target all of our frustration on a person, and we blame them for it. And grumbling is always done at someone. That's what you see biblically. And it's never productive. So Israel was hungry. You see this in Exodus chapter 16. It was a legitimate need and a legitimate frustration. But they grumbled at Moses. They communicated that it was his fault, and Moses rightly corrects him and says, hey, your grumbling is not at me. It's actually at God. So You ought to be careful with your grumbling. God doesn't hate grumbling because it's really annoying, which it is, and he doesn't hate grumbling because it's really unproductive, which it is, but God detests grumbling because it assumes the absolute worst about God. When we grumble at one another, when we grumble at God, what we do is we pridefully assume that we deserve something, and then we believe that that person or God is withholding that thing from us unfairly. What we believe is, is that God desires, or what we don't believe is, or know, is that God actually invites us into something completely different than grumbling. He invites us into prayer, to relationship, a relationship of communication productive and intimate conversation that's based on trust and faith. And he invites us to share our hearts and to share our burdens and our frustrations. And not with an air of, how could you do this to me? What were you thinking, God? But with humility, that there are oftentimes things that are outside of our comprehension And also with the humility that as Christians, we know this, this is the gospel, that what we actually deserve is death because of our sin, and anything less than that is absolutely grace and a blessing from God. And also trusting that God is sovereign and that He is good. That yes, He is in control, that's what being sovereign means, but that He's also good, that that means He's for us. When we believe these two things, despite how we might feel, what we know in our hearts is that we trust God, and then we don't grumble. Grumbling reveals impatience with God. It also reveals a lack of trust in God, and it reveals a lack of faith in God. That's why God hates it, and that's why Paul is saying, don't do it. Israel was guilty of it numerous occasions throughout the Old Testament, Paul's not trying to just parade Israel's sin and failures around to shame them. Remember, this is the example sandwich, right? So there's a purpose to these things happening and and a purpose to to which why they were recorded. You see this in verse 11. For our instruction. And so we can avoid the pain, we can avoid the sorrow and the rejection of not being able to enter into God's promised land by taking heed. See, the reality... Here is that you can engage in all of these areas of brokenness, in your heart, in the actions of your your life, and still be affiliated with God while still having spiritual experiences with God. Israel did, but in the end, God knew their hearts. The prerequisite for entering into the promised land was faithfulness to God, which is not through affiliation, not through experiences, But faithfulness faithfulness to God is through obedience to God's word and worship of God with our whole hearts. And Paul wants the Corinthians and us to experience the complete and the eternal fellowship with God in his promised heavenly kingdom. And he makes this really clear as he continues. Look at verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The heart of this passage is the heart of the gospel. Paul warns, based on Israel's experiences of faithlessness in their hearts, which led to sinfulness in their actions, so they're having evil desires, they're engaging in idolatry, they're committing sexual immorality, they're being resentful toward God by grumbling, and based on the lessons that we can learn from all those car crashes of Israel, he tells the Corinthian church in verse 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. i want to break down this verse because I think it's really important for understanding this whole passage So look closely with me. A simple breakdown of this sentence um, is going to be like this. So the therefore connects this statement directly with what preceded it, which we just talked about. Okay, So everything we just talked about, therefore, let anyone. So this is regardless of your position or your title within the, the church, regardless of your affiliation or your experiences, let anyone who thinks that he stands... So in the context of Israel, this would be anyone who thinks that they can stand or remain faithful to God and enough to enter into the promised land. Anyone who thinks that based on their affiliation to God or experiences of God, that, that in their heart of hearts they have enough faith as to not be overthrown, but that they actually can please God and persevere and be able to enter into God's heavenly kingdom. What does he say to them? Take heed, meaning pay careful attention or take notice to what? Lest he fall. This is not Paul saying, hey, watch your step or you're going to trip up a little bit. Paul is saying, you need to check your heart lest you fall away from God and be denied from entering into the promised land, God's heavenly, eternal kingdom. This is consistent with other things that Paul communicates to his churches. In his letter to the Romans, in chapter 11, verse 22, this is going to be on your screen, Paul says, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. So for Israel and for Corinth and for us, we see God's word exhorting us to pay attention, to perform a heart check on ourselves because the stakes here are high. This is not pay attention as if, like, hey, pay attention to your credit card bill. Make sure you don't have any unauthorized purchases on there. Like, that's not the level of what Paul is saying. He's saying, take heed, be attentive, so that you do not fall away and get cut off from the fellowship of the Lord for eternity. That's severe. So right now, you might be wondering, and you ought to be wondering, wait, hold on a minute. Is Tommy saying that I can lose my salvation Is this passage really saying that my salvation is based on my ability to take heed lest I fall out of the everlasting strong arms of the Lord? So we don't have time to launch into a sermon on the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, which is based on the idea that Jesus himself will not let any of us slip through his fingers between when we experience salvation and when we die, which is what we believe, uh, but that he'll keep us and that he'll hold us fast to the end. And what I will say is that these two texts are important for us as warning texts. These are not meant to induce fear, or insecurity in the believer. They are meant as reminders. Those who are saved, those who are in Christ, those who are born again and have the Spirit living inside of them, we will hear this warning, and we will obey, and we will steer clear, we will take heed. A passage that's helpful for understanding this uh, kind of complex communication is in John chapter 10, and this is going to be on your screen. Starting in verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The way to understand this is that those who are not within Jesus' fold, those who are not Christians, will hear these words. They might be sitting in this room right now, but they will not hear the voice of someone that they know, and so they will not follow when you try to get my girl's attention to say like, hey, come here, they're going to be able to identify your voice from my voice. So they might be like, who's calling me right now? And they might be incredibly skeptical of you, which is what we train them to do, is like, you know, be skeptical of strangers. But when I say, Chloe, Dave, you got to come right now, I mean, you better believe they come because they know my voice. But those who don't know the voice do not hear it and they do not follow. So for them, non-Christians, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12 and Romans eleven twenty two are either dismissed like this is crazy I don't believe it or it's terrifying I mean those are the two options to look at those verses but those who do believe when Jesus speaks we know his tender voice we know that he is the good shepherd and so we listen and we follow We hear the warnings, not as qualifiers for our faith, but as reminders of how we ought to live as sheep that are already within the fold of God. So let's look at verse 12 again as Christians, with that Christian lens. Verse 12 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. As Christians, the way that we read this is simply, I don't think... I can stand on my own power or persevere in the faith by my own strength. I know that I cannot stand at all. I know that my natural and my default state, as I've tried to stand on my own strength, is to be a fallen heap on the ground. Christian, listen to me for a second. You do not stand by 80% of your own strength, and then God gives you a little 20% extra boost to help you persevere in the faith. You don't even stand by 20% of your own strength, and God does most of the work in your life. God does all of the work in you. Your energy output is 0%. That's what being dead in our sin looks like. When you drive by a cemetery, those bodies that are buried under that ground exert 0% energy and 0% effort. But we have been made alive with Christ. Dead people don't resurrect themselves unless you're the son of man, which is what we talked about on Easter. But when we are brought back to life, God fully and completely restores our life and sustains our lives. We don't live by God giving us strength. God is our strength. Do you understand the difference between those two? For the believer, this should be incredibly encouraging. Some of us right now are heaps on the ground. Heaps on the ground. Some of us are crying out, God, I can't stand right now. I've got nothing in me. I'm a mess. My life is a wreck. I am hurt and I am exhausted. Well, the good news is, thank God, it's not up to you to stand you finishing the race is not up to your faithfulness. Faithful perseverance is not through some sense of prideful assurance in yourself. It's not in our own ability that we persevere in the faith. That's the warning that Paul is giving to the Corinthians, which also comes with a huge encouragement for the Christian. But then how do we as Christians, how are we supposed to live? If our output is zero percent, if our default state is a heap on the floor, how in the world are we supposed to remain faithful to the end to experience God's heavenly kingdom? Look at verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to, to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Man, I could preach, I think, a whole sermon on this one verse. And I do encourage you, take time this week to meditate on this. There's so many beautiful truths here. The first of which is that when we are tempted to sin, when we experience temptation in our lives, when we are tempted to have evil desires to covet or to lust, when we're tempted to worship things other than God, when when we're tempted to uh, act out in sexual sin, or when we're tempted to grumble, these are all normal experiences for all of us for everyone in the world. Israel experienced it. Paul experienced it. The Corinthians experienced it. But this is really critical, what Paul says next. So in light of inevitable temptations that will come our way, he doesn't say, all right, Corinth, time to brace yourself. Get yourself ready. Like, some things are coming your way. you got to be strong right now. you got to be ready to white-knuckle it through this temptation. He doesn't say, all right, let's pump ourselves up and strap up. What does he say? He says, God is faithful. He doesn't say, okay, now you have to be faithful. Not you have to keep it together. Not you have to be strong now. God is the faithful one. God is the strong one. God keeps it together for you. It enables you to persevere to the end. How do you do this? In the context of temptation, by giving us an escape. This is the truth that we need to know is that God does not set anyone up for failure. None of us in this room. I don't care how strong the temptation you experience is or how inevitable it might feel that you will fall into that sin or give into that sin. No Christian in this room is an exception to this reality that God does not set us up to fail. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. The Corinthians, they needed to hear this really bad. Did you draw the connection between Israel's brokenness and the Corinthians? I mean, it's like verbatim. Corinth is known for their greedy desires. They're known for all of their idol worship. They've got temples all over the city. They're known for their debauchery and licentiousness. They grumble so much that they've actually created factions within the church to team up to grumble against one another. So when they're hearing about Israel and seeing Israel's sin on display and seeing that Israel doesn't get into the promised land, they're realizing uh, we're in the same boat. And so you imagine they are listening with piqued interest. They don't want to be like Israel, who failed to obey God's, God, obey God's word and worship him with all of their hearts. So what does it look like to escape temptation? For the Corinthians, they were bombarded by it. Don't get bogged down as you read that verse there on the word endure. So this is not meant to say that you sit still and you kind of close your eyes and go into like a zen place as temptation continues to beat down on you. Escape means to escape, to, to not stay in the place of temptation. Christian faithfulness to God does not mean asking God for strength in order to sit through and endure temptation until it leaves you alone. Remember that we can't stand It it means looking for a way of escape from that temptation. How do you find the means of escape? Look at the next verse in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Run. Steer clear. Paul gives a similar exhortation in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, when he talks about sexual immorality. He says, Flee from sexual immorality, which means don't linger around. Don't try to grin and bear it. Don't rely on your own strength and your own ability to stand, but flee. Get out. You are not the defeater of sin. That's not our job. Our job is to escape temptation, not to beat temptation. And so the consequences of not taking sin seriously like this, of not fleeing when we get a hint of temptation, I'm not doing everything that we can to persevere in the faith is separation from God eternally. What you need to hear is if you are a Christian, you have been given the way of escape and the ability to flee. In Christ, you actually have someone to flee to. So we do not spend our days as Christians just running away from sin, but running to our Savior, the the one who does kill sin and the one who has defeated death. So in Christ, you are no longer enslaved to the sin of your former dead self. You have been washed. These are the words of Paul. You have been washed, you have been sanctified, and you have been justified We flee from sin. Like the song, Rock of Ages, the line that says, Wretched to the fount I fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Christian, this is our wilderness. Our life is the wilderness that we are walking through. But unlike Israel, who had to rely on their ability to remain faithful in the old covenant, and who who failed miserably and were denied entrance into the promised land, the new covenant in Jesus' blood is based on God's faithfulness and not ours. And all that's required is for us to put our faith and our trust in his faithfulness and what he has done to purchase our entrance into the heavenly and eternal kingdom. That's what we remember as we take communion. The last verses here in 15 through 22, Paul shows Corinth how damaging idolatry is to their faith. So in Corinth, idol worship, which included making sacrifices and sharing a meal, was a cultural norm. Today, it would be really hard for us to find a place of demon worship and to eat food that's been prepared for idols. I think it would be hard. But in Corinth, it was normal. It actually would have been socially unacceptable to not share these meals with their neighbors. That's how ingrained and normalized the idolatry was in their culture. But the theme that Paul carries over, and this is the last thing I'll say, and we'll finish for the morning, the theme that Paul carries over uh, of Israel sharing food and drink in the wilderness, which we see points to Christ himself being the bread of life and supplying living water, and then out of that, Jesus himself instituting our communion meal that we now share all together as brothers and sisters who are brought together into the kingdom of our Father, The Corinthians were destroying this beautiful image by participating in a different meal of worship to idols and to demons. He sums it up in verse 21 and 22 by saying, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? At the point point that Paul is making, And he's trying to communicate using reason, right? He says, I speak to you as sensible people, like judge for yourselves. What I'm saying is that there are practical and spiritual consequences to the sin of idolatry. So when we worship other things, when we participate in systems of worship, so anytime we're prioritizing anything over God, that's going to affect us practically and spiritually. God wants our whole heart in worship. And in the same way that Israel couldn't worship a golden cow and God simultaneously, in the same way that Corinth couldn't worship demons through meals and God through communion at the same time, so we cannot worship anything other than God alongside God. Look, we might not have a golden cow stash in our closet. We might not be participating in the occult. But this is, for each and every one of us as believers, a heart check for us to ask ourselves, What are things that I am prioritizing over God? What are the things that I just can't live without? What are things that I've incorporated into my regular routine, and what things still remain even as God gets edged out of my busy schedule? Those are likely the things central to our worship, and God wants us to flee from those things and worship God fully with our whole hearts. Verse 14, my beloved, And Paul is like, my brothers, my sisters, those whom I love, I have labored with, who I have poured out my entire life for free, for flee from idolatry. Mercy House, we cannot dabble in the worship of other things any more than someone could dabble in meth or dabble in prostitution and think that those things have no bearing or effect on our lives, that we could leave unscathed. The exhortation is to settle for nothing less than the one true God of Israel, the one who is absolutely loving and infinitely valuable. Delight yourself in God and learn from the examples of our forefathers and our foremothers trusting in God's faithfulness to keep us and to hold us until we enter into the true and better promised land, God's eternal heavenly kingdom where Christ is seated on the throne. Let's pray. God, you are a God who is faithful, who is unchanging and unwavering. God, we confess that we often worship other things. We confess that we often do not trust you We have a hard time maintaining our faith. God, we're thankful that it is not up to us. God, thank you that you hold us fast, that you will not let us go. God, help us to put our whole heart trust in you. God, help us to obey your word out of a place of trust and love and also that we would worship you with our whole heart, God. Only you can enable this in us. We are at 0% and we need your 100%.
0: We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.